standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Our co-host this week is Greg Bishop. A reminder to listeners, starting July 11th, the Paracast will be heard on local stations in the United States from the GCN Radio Network. And our time's going to be a little bit different on Sunday. It's going to be from 6 o'clock until 9 p.m., three hours of us, Central Time. So you have to factor that into wherever you are. We'll still be available online for live and on-demand streaming, and you can still download us from iTunes. That's July 11th, 6 to 9 p.m. Why are they extending us to three hours? Because you have the local news on the hour, which takes five minutes plus commercials. You add that to local spots and a few other things. Suddenly, we're here for three hours. That's how it goes. Greg, welcome aboard. So we're going to soon be famous. Soon? I thought we were already famous. Well, we're almost famous now. You mean famous-er? Famous-er. Yeah. Okay. Now, we have a really crazy forum, folks, if you haven't checked it out. Forum.theparacast.com. And our listeners are nothing if not outspoken. So when Walter Bosley, Greg's friend and sometimes co-host, was on the show a few weeks back, a lot of impact. People questioned his credentials, everything he said. So let's set the record straight, Greg. Have you actually confirmed that Walter Bosley has the background in the government that he says he does? Yeah, I've confirmed it. He, he offered it up himself. Actually, no, that's right. After I asked, I was, I made a joke when we were first speaking after I told how I'd met him and then everybody else ran away when they found out he, that he used to be in the government. I immediately went up and started talking to him at a conference uh, David Childress was putting on. I said, you know, people always ask about credentials. It's, you know, I, I guess I trust you. And he said, that, that's okay. I'll bring him in for you. So he brought him into my show and he actually brought in his records, his discharge forms, all of his, um, I can't remember what those things are called. When you see a, an Air Force officer, the uniform has all those little ribbons and badges on it. He brought that in and um, his ID and things like that from when he was in the uh, Air Force. He also told me he was in the FBI and told me which office he was at. And for a while, it was at the Los Angeles office on Wilshire Boulevard. It's a huge building. I mean, it's a federal building in Wilshire in Westwood. And um, I had a friend that works at the Directors Guild uh, of America, and uh, a Writers Guild, I'm sorry. And he uh, soon after I met uh, Walter, he had occasion to call up the um, FBI office in L.A., and his wife answered the phone. Walter met his wife, his former wife now, at, at the FBI, and she still works there. So she confirmed, yes, Walter did work here. Yes, I am at the, I am with the FBI office, and I'm their public information officer now. Um, but before she was an agent, uh, I believe, along with Walter, or somewhere in the in the structure at, at the at the time he had uh, specified. So to my satisfaction, he was he his credentials are what they say he says they are. Okay. So he's not obviously fabricating credentials just for Greg Bishop, nor are the people at the FBI fabricating the fact that he worked there. No. I mean, I, I've known him for, what, probably six or seven years. He didn't even care about being on the radio or, or you know, uh, being a public figure or anything like that for the longest time. I mean, he just kind of stumbled into it. It's not like he's using fake credentials, if people think he is, to get somewhere or, or make people think that he's something he says has more validity than anybody else. At least that's my impression, and I'm sure he'd concur with that. 
I think the other issue people were questioning was his experiences. He's had a lot of strange experiences, and they ask questions. Now, I have to say this. Walter has been very gracious participating in the forum, answering the questions. Sometimes he gets a little testy. Yes, he does. Well, he's got a, you know, there's a, I, I think there's a, a difference of what people are looking for. And I, uh, discussed this on my show last week. I haven't, I haven't posted it yet, yet with Walter. I actually said Walter will come on to answer his critics. But what, what it came down to is, um, there are certain people who listen to these shows and particularly the Paracast who have a higher standard of, or a different standard, I guess, of quote unquote proof. But the thing is that, that some people really need proof in a certain way and other people don't really care. They're just more interested in the information and they don't really take it horribly seriously. And so we finally got into a discussion where we, we said, well, some people that are, are quite skeptical but still interested, um, you know, no, no proof is good enough and they're looking for an answer and um, I, I don't think it's going to come and Walter really doesn't either. So we're content, and I'm content to listen to people's stories, not take them too seriously. And if there's something that seems to resonate with me or with something that I've read before or seems to lead somewhere, I'll follow it. If not, I'll, I'll just forget it. And I, you know, I don't care whether the person is making up stories or whatever. If they're making something up, fine. Then, you know, I've just wasted a couple hours listening to somebody making something up. But if I'm entertained, that's fine, too. Okay, well, the thing is, too, I think some people hope that we'll see the UFO visually, we'll photograph it, we'll take movies, we'll have the radar tracking it, we'll have the airplanes following it around, we'll have 100% confirmation, or it will land and there will be a mass landing. Unfortunately, the UFO field doesn't work that way, the paranormal field doesn't work that way, and when things happen, they're not predictable. I mean, you have people who run right. around and say, I can predict that the UFO is going to land in my backyard next Thursday. And yeah, well, they're, they're very, wrong. very rarely does that ever happen. <laughs> I, I don't know about very rarely. I'd probably say never. Well, I'm being charitable because somebody <laughs> will write a letter and say, you know, it happened once. Yeah, well, the, the thing is that there's also uh, somebody finally asked on one, I think on Walter's thread, what problem do you people have with science? Why are you so against science? Why, isn't it a good system for as a method of proof, as, uh, you know, look at where it's gotten it. And I think the person, whoever wrote that was missing the point, at least for me, uh, from what I was saying. My point is that I'm, I get very sh uh, short with people who are interested in scientism, which is a belief in science rather than using the scientific method, wh whereby they don't realize that science doesn't have the answer yet. And if, uh, to some things, and then if, you know, if it doesn't have the answer yet and it hasn't evolved to the point where it can get the answers to some of these paranormal questions, then it doesn't exist. And I don't agree with that. And I think that's what the basic argument is, is that I, I think that science is going to evolve and change and be able to look at some of these things that we call UFOs and, and the paranormal, even though it, it, they're not repeatable on demand as a scientific method demands. Also, if you're looking into things where individual people or small groups of people report something strange, if there is a consistency of those reports, even from people who weren't aware of the original report, there's something to investigate. Now, on this week's show, we're going to talk about an investigator no longer with us, somebody who started with the UFO field in the very early days. And he basically introduced concepts that have become part of our popular culture such as the Men in Black, M-I-B. We're talking about Gray Barker, and we'll be talking to 
Bob Wilkinson. He's director of a film called Shades of Grey, a documentary about the life and times of Gray Barker. I knew Gray Barker, and we're also going to bring some of Gray's close friends on, such as Jim Mosley, perhaps one of his closest friends of the world, is going to join us, the editor of Saucer Smear, and also Alan Greenfield, who wrote a foreword to one or more of Gray's books. One specifically I remember is A Silver Bridge about the Mothman. So we have that coming up next on The Paracast. Not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Bob Wilkinson is director of a feature-length film called Shades of Grey. Bob, what attracted you to the life of Grey Barker? Well, I ran across them in a book here. It was titled Way Out in West Virginia. And I noticed that, you know, he left behind this large work, volume of work papers up at the Clarksburg Harrison County Public Library. I guess he sold some of his publications to them while he was alive. And I, I drove, made a drive up. It's in my backyard. I'm from West Virginia, live here. And uh, it's just a two-hour drive for me. Drove up and started reading through the papers and became interested in Barker and the UFO field. But why make a film? Why make a film? Well, I find Gray Barker a very fascinating man. Uh, I think uh, with his body of work, the the large stories that he touched upon, you know, with the Mothman, Men in Black, and, and Braxton County Monsters kind of got a hand in all this. And that just kind of, you know, drew me to it. And the more and more I've read about him, the, the larger the story became. And, I mean, it's a multifaceted story. Okay, now, why is Gray Barker important to people who are following the UFO research field? To me, it's a, it's, it really gives you an insight into that early, into the beginnings of the UFO field, through his writings, the people. And, it, and it, I think with the Saucerian, I think you really get into the psychology of it and the early personalities in the field. I mean, it's it's really a history lesson if you go back through those, those were the writings that Barker did and the publications that he has. Now, one of those early personalities that Gray Barker got in touch with is another one of our guests, Jim Mosley. Jim, how did you meet Gray Barker? Well, in 1953, I was going around the country for several weeks 
in my car, um, preparing to write a book on flying saucers and co-author it with a, a man I had met, a uh, professional writer. So I had the time and money. I started to go all around the country, uh, out to California in the southern route and back uh, to uh, New Jersey in a more or less central route. And uh, in the course of doing that, I, I had a list of the people that I wanted to interview, uh, people that had written early books on the subject or had had a spectacular sighting or scientists that had made a public statement on the subject, anything like that. And I had heard of uh, Gray Barker uh, because of his Fosterian and uh, I think I was aware of the fact that he was one of the original investigators of, uh, of the, um, not Mossman, uh, the other thing in 1952. Flatwoods. Uh, Flatwoods, exactly. You see, what would you do without me to remember you, your uh, stuff, you know? Yes, I, I'd like because to I wasn't there, you. but I read a lot of your notes over the years, so I can fill in the blanks. <laughs> mm. Well, anyway, so, uh, be comforting. So uh, I interviewed him, and at that time he was uh, quite young and not drinking as much as he was later, and uh, a little bit idealistic and uh, so forth. I seen maybe at the beginning he believed some of this stuff. Uh, later on, I'm positive that he did not believe any of this stuff. But uh, since we got along, uh, I continued to keep in touch with him after I made this trip. I was back in New Jersey. He lived in Clarksburg, West Virginia. It's um, at that time a drive of about 10 hours or so uh, between those two places. Okay. Now, the one thing you just said, he was very idealistic early on. Mm. Obviously believed in this stuff. Later on, he disbelieved. Some or all of it? No, and later on he believed none of it. He lost the faith early on. A part of it was because he apparently believed the uh, story of the hush-up of uh, Albert K. Bender, which, you know, the story we could go into it. If Let's you like. go into it briefly. All right, well, Bender was the uh, fellow that had the first uh, widely known UFO magazine. There may have been one or two before that, but uh, his started in 1952 and closed down in 1953 after only four or five issues. The reason being that he claimed uh, that uh, he had been visited by three men in black. That's where the whole three men in black uh, term uh, began. And um, I believe that uh, at the beginning, Barker thought that was true, even though it was rather absurd, uh, because there was no reason to think that Bender had stumbled on some truth that nobody else had stumbled on. And if he had, it certainly did not appear in his newsletter, because it was a quite an ordinary newsletter with a little bit of theory and a few sightings and uh, nothing that would be... Uh, or anything near important enough to have the government or the space people or whoever uh, come and silence him. So I was never impressed with that. Uh, so I, I met Bender a couple of times in the course of trying to investigate the subject there and the thing that had happened to him. And I imagine Gray Barker met him a couple of times also. 
Uh, but getting back to what I'm trying to say, I think at the beginning, uh, Barker really did think something spectacular and true had happened to uh, Albert K. Bender. And I think over a period of time, he realized how absurd that really was and lost faith in uh, Bender and in doing so, lost faith in the subject. And after that, he was only an entertainer like uh, I am, as you can see. Uh, am I entertaining? Uh, I hope so. Now, the thing that was kind of unusual about Bender is that later on he came out with a book, which I presume Gray Barker wrote all or most of, called Flying Saucers and the Three Men. It turned out he was a contactee. So what's that all about? Did he make all that up? Did he imagine it? Is that where he imagined Three Men in Black came to shut him up? What? Well, I believe that he uh, submitted a real manuscript to uh, Barker, and I'm uh, quite sure that Barker rewrote it just to himself, but I think the basic stuff was what Bender was trying to say. Again, uh, as, as you know, Gene, I'm not a cynic on the subject of saucers. I certainly believe there's something going on, but uh, none of the Bender thing impressed me at all, and the book was nonsense. I believe it had to do with the space people were visiting uh, Earth because they were short of some key min minerals on their planet, and they were uh, coming here mostly uh, to the Arctic regions and uh, mining for these uh, things. That's all I really remember about it. Um, and uh, I, I thought that was absurd, and I'm sure by that time, because this was several years after the original uh, hush-up story, I'm sure by that time, Gary Barker thought it was absurd, too. So uh, what can I tell you? I, I met Bender a few times. He lectured for my uh, UFO discussion group in uh, New York City once, and uh, uh, he stayed in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, where he lived uh, for a while, uh, quite a while, and then he uh, moved out to California, and by that time he would not speak to anybody on the subject, uh, absolutely. Okay, now and let's go back to the beginning. So when he originally had his little UFO organization, and lots of people did that, you have an organization, you lose interest and you do something else, do you think he just lost interest, or do you think he really believes that someone or something came to him I and told him to shut up? I think he wanted to go out in a... Uh, Playing of glory, and one thing that is not emphasized because that kind of spoils the whole thing. Uh, before Bender got interested in saucers, he was interested in horror and uh, that whole genre of writing and movies and so forth. And uh, on the walls of his little apartment were all kinds of uh, posters of horror movies and uh, that kind of thing. And so he had a background in in fantasy and so apparently for a while he got interested in saucers that were supposed to be real and then perhaps he got bored with it and just wanted to go out uh, flaming the path of glory uh, and did so. This is my thing. I spoke with a few people too about Bender and I was going to get some interviews with them and they actually they agreed to the interviews and then they turned it down and but there's some speculation that he had gotten involved with Skull and Bone and some of those types of organizations. Oh, and I never heard that. 
Yeah, there's a spec, uh, like, yeah, I think he may even had a shrine in his house. And there's some speculation that that could be tied into it, but I could never interview anyone enough to, to really get down to the, to the bottom of that and kind of get that out. Now, who had, who did you say possibly had a shrine in his house? Was that Bender or Jessup? Al Bender, Al Bender, yeah. Oh well, Al Bender yeah. had a had, had a uh, room in his house, and I'm sure that uh, one of the guests probably saw it. That had a bunch of um, horror stuff. He said stuck on the walls, and there's pictures of it. There's skeletons and masks and yeah. things like that. I was I was in his house in uh, or his apartment rather, and uh, I saw those things. And I believe that uh, Augie Roberts, August Steve Roberts, who was uh, a well-known figure at that time, and a friend of Gray Parker's and a investigator of the Bender case, I think he was in the house and took pictures of the walls with all the stuff on it. And I believe he tended to suppress the pictures because he knew it made Bender look like a nut and he did want to believe the story because obviously you always to believe everything bob what was your feeling in researching the life of gray barker did you see the evidence of this growing disenchantment with ufo field ufo reality that stuff yeah, you can see it in the in the letters that he that he corresponded with his followers. And speaking with Jerome Clark, he says that you know Barker tended to the fringe of the field, and and they kind of that was his following and that was his specialty. And because uh, he had some outlandish stories and and really close, you know, pretty much sci-fi stuff that he put out. And uh, you can see that in correspondence with the fans they would write back and forth and he would call the nut wing of the field and and talk about peddling his books and things like that to them and you know pretty much the, you know they would buy anything but you kind of saw this entertainer coming out in him as it went as, did you see any evidence bob of any serious interest at all remnant in what gray barker did after that initial disenchantment you know, I, I kind of, if you read Barker's books and things, you can kind of see the tongue-in-cheek writing style that he's got in his publications and his books. And I would like to think that if you spend 30 years in, in a field, I think it was, I want to say it's 30 years, 1950 to 1984, so it's 34 years, that you have some interest in the subject, obviously. And so I would like to think that somewhere deep down there was some kind of belief that, you know, I didn't well, come across the thing that said, you know, I truly believe in it in the end. Well, let me uh, interrupt you just to say this. I think it's very simple, and it took me a long time to figure this out. I knew Barker very well, as I think you all know. He considered himself an entertainment. He wanted to put a sense of wonderment in uh, people's lives as, as a uh, child, uh, and as a young man, he, just like uh, Bender, had been interested in horror movies, horror masks, uh, acting out, uh, horror skits. That was his uh, background. I hadn't thought of it before, but in a way, very much like uh, Albert K. Bender. So he dedicated his life to entertaining people and making a living from doing so. And that was his motivation. It's uh, not uh, quite what uh, we would want it to be, but uh, it definitely was a positive thing that he thought he was doing, and he did it quite well. Hey, Bob, the uh, the part of the film that interested me a lot was the uh, journalist that was corresponding with Barker, who basically, as he said, helped, helped Gray tell lies. 
Um, and it turns out, I guess he's part of the skeptical community now. At least he was. Yeah, you're talking uh, John Sherwood. Yeah, Sherwood. That's him. right. I've had yeah. some correspondence he, with him. Yeah, he's he's an interesting guy. He's, uh, he uh, he started corresponding with Barker as a kid, a teenager. He had written some stories for Barker, and you know Barker said, "Yeah, these are great, but let's let's jazz it up a bit." And he had him change his name, and I think Sherwood was kind of hesitant to put his name on something that was going to be passed as you know as, as journalism, even though it was a sci-fi story that he'd written for Barker, and. So they came up with the name Dr. Richard Pratt, and it appears in a lot of uh, the early Salsarian publications. You'll see that correspondent, and I can't remember. They gave him a job title, but I can't remember exactly what the title was. Scientific advisor or something? Yeah, it was something. Yeah, something like that. And so, and and they made him a doctor to make it sound more more legit. Yeah, just that like Adamski. Yeah. Professor Adamski. Uh, yes, professor. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial. This is the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Greg Bishop as our co-host. We're talking about the life and times of Gray Barker who was either a very well-known UFO researcher or an entertainer or both. We have Bob Wilkinson. He was director of a feature-length film about Grey called Shades of Grey. And also we're featuring on the show Alan Greenfield and Jim Mosley. Alan, you had some observations to make. Well, first of all, I have a very, very different take on this. And I want to make it clear that on, in terms of personal relationship, while I have a long and rather extensive personal relationship with Gray Barker. I certainly can't claim that um, that I have the same personal uh, interaction over decades uh, that Jim Mosley has, I think, in a sense, and I realized this very early on, um, and I'll tell you exactly when, that maybe Jim was a little bit too close to Gray to get a kind of an objective view of what Gray was all about. First of all, I don't consider there to be a sharp line between that which is, quote, real and that which is, quote, fictional. And I don't think Gray did either. He was part folklorist, part, part uh, entertainer, and uh, part um, looking for the strange in the universe, walking on the wild side in many different senses. And the UFO and monster lore, which is particularly rich in Appalachia, which was his home turf, 
Well, I, I think shares in some of all of that. I also think that uh, the entire UFO mystery has a, a way of blinking in and blinking out. For example, um, one of the things that has occurred to me uh, long ago, and I certainly have mentioned it on your program and in my books and in various places, is uh, from the standpoint of a ceremonial magician, the the um, um, Alvinder's room and the way he had it decorated and his particular background in science fiction and so forth does not militate against this story. To the contrary, uh, if you open a door, something comes in. Gray probably was closest to the truth when I really confronted him with uh, what he believed. And actually, this was in Atlanta, the first uh, of the National UFO Conferences to be held in, in Atlanta, which was what, 1972, 73, lost in the mists of history. But we went out to dinner, Jim was there, actually, and uh, along with some of the local luminaries in Gray, and um, I asked Gray what he really believed, because he, I think, I may be getting two different occasions mixed up, but he had showed me the Lost Creek film, and I spotted the, I saw the fishing line, essentially, and pointed it out to him, um, and um, he just, shrugged his shoulders. He was like Jim, not above hoaxing, but I think he also had more beliefs than Jim is willing to credit. And those who know him through through secondary contact, I think he pretty much told whoever he was speaking to what they wanted to hear. This was a public occasion, so there were lots of people who he had told one thing to and lots who he not. It was also a social occasion rather than an on-stage occasion, and there was some liquid nourishment going around, and uh, it was uh, convivial. And he said, I think I know what you're doing, Gray. I said, on the surface, you believe it all, everything. You put, and even back then, you put Tim Beckley to shame in terms of all the stuff you're, you're willing to countenance. And he got a blank look on his face. He knew what I meant. And I got closer to him and I said, but under that, you're saying to yourself, all this is hooey. I know it. I'm just an entertainer. And he got this sort of enigmatic but flickering in his eyes. Um, a lot of people he told that to. Um, people that he was close to and trusted not to spoil the game. And I said, but under that is Gray, who comes out of the primeval Appalachian folkloric tradition where fact and fiction are intermixed in such a way that it's impossible to separate one out from the other. And I think it's closer to the truth to say, you believe it all. And he just smiled. It was not a smile of, 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 of sarcasm or cynicism. It was a smile of recognition. I can't say that for sure, but that's what I honestly think is true. Now, with Jim, when they were, you know, hanging out together, and as Jim details in his Two Little Red book, uh, um, uh, and I would urge people to dust off a cup, it was... Shockingly close to the truth, I remember. Yeah. Which it is. <laughs> Gene, I have to Well-named book, which is, uh, I think the only flaw is anything from Prometheus Press that uh, ufologists are afraid to touch. And that's like religious people are afraid to touch it. And, of course, 
I don't have a belief in UFOs. I simply think the preponderance of the evidence is there's something to this. I think Gray thought that too, but he also knew there was a lot that was hokey and a lot that was very, very entertaining. And Gray Barker, the double entendre from the title of the movie, which I haven't seen, by the way, but would love to have a DVD of. Hint, hint, hint. He lived in shades of gray, not in black and white. Jim seems to paint him in black and white. I've had two occasions to reevaluate gray since he passed away. And one was in preparing for the um, National UFO Conference the second time in Atlanta in 1994, I believe it was. And Jim was to receive our first, perhaps only, uh, um, at our banquet, the first Gray Barker Lifetime Achievement Memorial Award. And, of course, I did some research on, on Gray at that time, looking back over not so much our personal relationship, which was 20-some odd years, but, um, but over his written works, uh, his pseudonymous written works, some of the works not designed to be seen by others, like UFO 69, you know that one, Jane, you introduced me to it, other things that he did had an outrageously good sense of humor, was a fair to middling poet. Um, yes, he knew science fiction very well, had uh, gone to one of the world cons in days when that wasn't a hip thing to do for, you know, the vast majority of people, but so did I. You know, that was, uh, I can relate to that. That doesn't mean that one doesn't, science fiction doesn't mean one doesn't have a sense of science, of discovery. Science fiction in many ways anticipates it. The best comparison that I can make, oh, I'm skipping one other thing. I had occasion about two years ago to review the whole career of Gray Barker once again. And sort of outside of the fact that Jim Mosley and I are friends and have talked about Gray a lot, and Gray was my friend, but to review it because I had been asked by the, um, the person republishing uh, The Silver Bridge, which I think is a far, far underestimated book, and which I, at the time, that was the point at which I realized that Jim wasn't getting what Gray was doing. And I thought that I was, and I told Gray what I thought of it, and he said, You've got it. I want you to do the you know, introduction. I want you to do the editing. I did a terrible introduction. I was a kid then, and my writing style had not gotten perfected. So here was another chance with a different publisher to write a new introduction, and I did. And it, it gets much closer to what I really think about Gray Barker and what I think he was trying to convey in The Silver Bridge, which is a lot closer to who he really was than, let's say, they knew too much about flying saucers, which intermixes fantasy and reality very freely, and I think not in a distasteful way. It wasn't a scientific book. It wasn't designed to be. Certainly, The Silver Bridge was. And again, when I uh, was asked to write an introduction to uh, what I understand will be out before the end of this year, and it's a first-time introduction to the republication of what is more or less the last last thing uh, Gray had published uh, in his lifetime. There was one 
book, I think, that was published either posthumously or while he was busy dying um, slowly. Um, it was, it's called In Be the Terror Among Us, and uh, I had the honor of being asked to write the introduction to that, and I labeled it, not alone, the, the ultimate postmodern novel. Is it a novel? Is it a, is it a docudrama? Yeah. And I would compare... Can you have that perspective, the perspective that I have, and I think even more so the perspective that uh, Gray has in his works, which notice I think in present tense, for the works move on, to something that um, my eldest son, Alex, knows a great deal about, because he was the head writer for some of the um, world wrestling entertainment for um, a couple of years. And... Uh, of course, everybody assumes that that professional wrestling is not only these days, especially is not only flamboyantly hoaxed, but it is um, um, more outrageous as the years go by in order to continue to get the enormous audience uh, that it gets. But I got a new perspective from dealing you know with someone directly inside that and I realized under the uh, under the story of how things are rehearsed and this and that you know there is a as a, a deeper story of the uh, the strength and tragedy of these men who will do all kinds of things and all of this does not come from any one source I have you know my own sources in, in that area but these are are great athletes these are great uh, um, huge bulky men that can do some of the uh, the, the stunts that uh, that are best known from uh, Cirque du Soleil type people who, who are um, you know much more built for that sort of thing let's go past the rustling but we get kind of the picture here before we go on Jim well, but let me just make okay. one, uh, one more sentence well, let's, let's summarize There is a reality underlying that which is perfectly... Gene, I have to say something. Yeah, well, let let Alan finish, and then you can say it. Alan, please finish. Give me 30 more seconds, I'll be done, and I'll be quiet. Um, just as with the uh, the wrestling, which is staged, there is also a great deal of of athletic effort, art, and reality, gut level reality, which has cost some people their lives, quite a few actually in recent years. There is a reality underlying, if you are inside of the subject, the UFO mystery, which uh, I think uh, those who see it up close. They know the theater of it, but they also know the reality of it. Uh, what the Gray Barker Project said, um, I can I quote one paragraph, and then I'll be very, very quiet until you call upon me again. One paragraph? One paragraph. The ultimate postmodern novel, Gray Barker's work, is an act of literary self-creation. If the postmodern novel troubled the notion of authorship, of intertextual relations, and of the margins between text and content, then the Gray Barker archive is the most extensive, successful, and operatic postmodern novel ever written. Individual texts, plural in the archive, present complex interplays of truth, interpolation, and invention. 
At the same time, the archive's insertion into public memory and the space of debate causes a seismic disturbance in the very concept of the archive. By definition, UFOs are a question of evidence. We seek evidence of their existence, but also find that all evidence produced poses questions on the nature of evidence itself. The Gray Barker Archive presents no end of evidence, presents the author as trickster, and presents text as a self-reflexive and pastiche. And that, I think, is the truth about Gray Barker and the truth about ufology. Jim Mosley. Okay, what is your opinion about his, as they say, different point of view about Gray Barker? Well, he says that I was too close to Gray to be objective in judging him. I did hear him say that, and I think he's probably quite right about it. Al is a very intellectual fellow, and I find him uh, hard to disagree with because very often I don't even understand what he's saying, even when I can hear what he's saying. So I can't comment very much on what he just finished saying, but uh, I'm glad he said it. Well, I also think Jim is part of the mythos as well. So, <laughs> I mean, I was shaped by Jim Mosley and Gray Barker. <laughs> what I am is a product of them, <laughs> so for better or worse, here it is. Uh, so you're a walking donut. Uh, no, I'm pretty skinny and buff, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I think I was too, uh, uh, Alan. Same as you, shaped shaped partially by uh, Gray Barker and Jim Mosley, and, and thankful for it. The one thing I remember from your introduction to Silver Bridge, the new edition that came out, was uh, probably from the same uh, meeting you had with Barker, um, or the party, or the uh, bar party, or whatever it was. And my favorite quote was, well, somebody said, Gray believes in everything, and Gray kind of smiled and said, I believe in everything, and I believe in nothing. I love that quote. Well, I, I'd like to comment on that. He was quoting August C. Roberts, the UFO photographer that I referred to earlier. Uh, Augie was a very strange fellow, but uh, you know, perhaps on his grave should be written those words because he used them very frequently and he meant them. And he often said, I believe in everything and nothing. Okay, well, that is something to certainly remember him by. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at one 800 728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com what are you waiting for your fate awaits Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Our co-host is Greg Bishop. We're featuring Bob Wilkinson, director of Shades of Grey, about the life and times of Grey Barker. Certainly an unusual, very talented figure in UFO research. Along for the ride, Alan Greenfield... 
and Jim Mosley, both of whom knew Gray very well. Bob, so listening to Alan's kind of revisionist statement here, what's your reaction? Well, I, I agree with the uh, the folklorist aspect of it, and I think that's ingrained in our culture here in Appalachia and West Virginia. And you know, and I've gotten in trouble for saying this on some of the, sh- the interviews that I've done, and the, the listeners kind of get on to me, but. I think a lot of these stories that Gray Barker spoke about started with a grain of truth, whether it be someone, you know, he, he gathered the story from, from someone as a reporter and it kind of grew from there. And it's not saying that something, something did happen on the, on the genesis of these stories, whether it be someone's making them up or they had a genuine experience. And I think Gray Barker took that and, he ran with it. So I, I do see him as a folklorist because he's gathering these stories and, and, you know, a lot of them have grown to where they, where they are today because of Greg Barker. And that's central to understanding Appalachia, really. Let's look at the men in black, okay? So certainly we have the original Albert K. Bender story and they knew too much about flying saucers where he is supposedly visited by three men in black, told to shut up because he found out the truth about UFOs. But the men in black has taken on a life of its own. Can you talk about that, Bob? You know, if you, if you go back to the great early books, I think it's, you know, he's talking about, the you know, you have this secret and you can't let it out or it'll get you into trouble. And... You know, it's grown into this friendly movie that it is today. And, I, you know, it's not the same. I think Greg Barker was more, as, as Jim and everyone that talked about, his background is in horror and science fiction. He liked that as a kid. And I think he was writing a terror, you know, it's a, it's a book about terror. You know, today it's grown into these blockbuster movies, and they're about to make part three on the men in black and but I think that it had to resonate with Gray because of his life and and I think he did have that that side of him where he had a secret of his own and he couldn't especially living in West Virginia Appalachia that secret couldn't come out and as someone in the documentary said I think it was the curator of his collection it's better to be known as a UFO guy in small town Appalachia so I think the men in black resonated with him in that sense. Okay, but Men in Black, do you cover in your documentary the history of where that went or just leave it to the extent of Gray Barker's participation in spreading the mythology? No, I started, uh, it covers his his friendship with Bender and uh, that kind of got him going in the field. He was an investigator for Al Bender and Al Bender, there's still the letters in the archive up there where Bender would send him a uh, a letter saying, hey, go investigate this case. And Barker would go investigate it. And he wrote for Bender, and, you know, Bender closed the shop. And in a way, it was passed, you know, Bender's publication was kind of passed on to Barker. He kind of carried, you know, grabbed the torch and ran with it from there as far as the, the zine publication with the Saucerian. But it, it covers the early idea of Men in Black, where they were established there. And they were labeled the Men in Black in Barker's book. And so I don't really go back into the past because there's more historic evidence that there's there's incidents involving, you know, the mysterious men in black, but they were never referred to as MIB or men in black, anything like that. So it was a matter of the labeling. Now, did you cover this? Does anyone know? We understand before there was a movie Men in Black, there was a comic book. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody had the rights to Men in Black. No one went to Gray Barker and said, we're going to do a comic book on this. Here's $500 million. Right. 
And I think that's the dangerous thing that Barker was treading in because he's creating a folklore, but at the same time, he's passing it off as journalism. And and it gets into the same thing with the, the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and when they sued Dan Brown. And basically, the only way they could follow through with that lawsuit to say, hey, you owe us money because you stole our work is to say, we're a fraud, and our book is a fraud. And and they were unwilling to admit that, so there's you can't copyright an incident that you claim to be true. So since Gray Barker said, the Men in Black happened, then anybody can go out there and say, okay, let's make a movie about Men in Black, but it's going to be, of course, a comedy movie, or we'll do a comic book or something like that. Yeah, yeah, because it's basically... I mean, Barker, I kind of, if you go back to Barker's writings, even the MIB, The Secret Terror Among Us, you read that book. And Barker, is, is, knowing Barker and the letters that I've read, I can see some of the tongue-in-cheek writing that he does. And But I think that once you establish it as journalism, then it's out there. And there's you can't, you can't go back from that. So this is kind of an unusual form of journalism then because it's taking a basic factual concept and then immersing it in some sort of fictional veneer? Can you ask that again? Okay. You take a factual concept of some sort, then you embellish it. And so it is no longer the core event but something a little bit greater. So then do we call it fiction? Do we call it fact fiction? What do we call it? Historiography is the, is the correct term. All movies about history, uh, ipso facto, are abridged and embellished, but they're not necessarily untrue. The, the History Channel for a while had, uh, well, I don't know how accurate the History Channel's documentaries are, but they do a documentary and then they show the movie about the same era. And of course, there are differences in the film. So does that make the film untrue? It depends on how you define it. Uh, the movie Pearl Harbor isn't exactly an account of how things went on, although it has a documentary style. But certainly Pearl Harbor occurred. Certainly the, I think it was the uh, the Battle of Midway where the movie ends, so that it ends on a somewhat less defeatist uh, note. Yeah, but all you're doing there, Alan, is you're taking an actual historic event and you're creating a fictional film using that historic event as the basis. So, of course, you have films about Nazis and about World War II, where you know, of course, that in the movie Inglorious Bastards, they didn't kill Hitler that way. Yes, that's that's quite true, and that's carrying it a bit further. Um, that's That's obviously purely mythical, although it's based on historically authentic characters, and um, some of them, and uh, at least the background characters are. And to the extent that the characterizations are, are, are well done, you could say that as a, as a character development thing, that it it gets Hitler, it doesn't get Hitler, whereas, you know, it, it's, it's in a different genre. But movies that like uh, The Longest Day, which is another D-Day film, are, are roughly accurate. I mean, I've talked to D-Day veterans, in fact, in recent years, some of them, you know, getting elderly are starting to open up in ways that I never saw before, never thought they would. And uh, their stories are 
very, very, very much like the films, subjectively. I think film is a subjective medium. Um, it's meant to be. It's meant to be absorbed in a visual, auditory sort of way, as opposed to, let's say, an historical, um, um, well, a history um, in, a, in a book, which is designed to be factual, even to the point of being boring, but nevertheless uh, has the minutiae correct. Sometimes uh, that's uh, missing the forest before the trees. And there is something to be said for the um, the historical novel and the historical projection in film uh, as getting to the inner gut-level truth of something rather than simply recite recitation of the facts. And I think that was the channel that, that Gray was on. He, he knew the, the feel and could, could successfully, as few writers in ufology, uh, have been able to do the feel of being around a spooky case, whether it's a monster case or uh, or a UFO case or even a, a contact case, the eerie feeling involved in it is a part and parcel of the mystery. Simply to recite it in a Dr. Heineck sort of manner and evaluate it, it's kind of missing the experiential part of it. Gray never missed the experiential part of it. And I think that that is probably just as important as getting all the, uh, quote, facts packed down, because ultimately uh, an experience in the field is like a car wreck. You're never really going to know for sure if it happened exactly the way any given witness says it, because... Well, it's even become more so nowadays, of course, if you listen to the political talking heads on cable TV. They are so diametrically opposed in their interpretation of events, you have no clue what's going on. Yeah, it raises questions about all of history, doesn't it? I mean, if you, if you watch the three news channels, if you go to the, what I call the commie channel, uh, MSNBC, you get one interpretation. You get the, uh, and I don't say that unlovingly, I'm a fan of the commie channel. Uh, you go to Fox News, uh, the news in quotes there, and you get the Tea Party view of, uh, of world history. You go to CNN, it's somewhere in between, but it nevertheless is a corporate opinion, and there are things that are said and things that are not said. And even on this program, there are things, you know, that I can't say in the way that I would like to say them um, because they're, they've become politically incorrect. There are words that we're expunging from the English language that, that hit the gut rather than the brain. And I think that there are, are, are if you take a given news event and go through that permeation, you're going to get uh, totally different interpretations. Well, which one is true? Probably none of them, and probably all of them. And I think the recognition that they um, uh, that the uh, scientist in the white coat behind the glass pane can observe reality went out with Heisenberg, and we need to acknowledge that it's simply there may be an objective reality out there. I am inclined to think that there is, but our access to it is limited by our senses and our little uh, hairy biped brains and our instruments. Yeah, exactly. Well, our instruments are extensions of our right. our brain can go, and we design the instruments according to what we're capable of reading. You know, so it it really begs the question: What do we really know? I think we can only approximate truth, and truth always involves both the objective truth and the subjective truth. 
Both of them are truths. I mean, uh, there are people who've approached very closely long before Gray Barker. Uh, Carl Jung came very close to 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 dealing with that. But the fact is that uh, the information that was available to to Jung when he addressed UFOs was was limited. I think Festinger uh, uh, and uh, the, the, his crew, um, who are the, the the founders of the notion of cognitive dissonance and when prophecy fails get very close to uh, as close to truth as we can get uh, the book is often considered a debunking book I don't consider either um, a modern myth young to modern myth or Fessinger at all um, when prophecy fails to be negative I consider them to be actually increases our understanding of the subjective nature of what we're dealing with. Yeah, uh, it's, um, with re- regard to Barker, it seems like, and anybody could respond to this, is that he was mining that area that um, is very important, like you just said, of the subjective, because we're emotional and and intellectual creatures, reasoning and emotional creatures, and you have to address both sides of that when speaking about anything, um, I guess particularly particularly the UFO subject, where still not much more is known than when it first burst on the scene. Yeah, exactly. Jim, you have any reaction about yes, this I, Well, I think that last point was uh, a very well made. Uh, after all these years of research and straining and writing and thinking, we still haven't got a clue, really, as to what the truth about flying saucers really is, the objective truth, if there is one. And uh, that has eluded us completely uh, up until the present time. And so if you put that into the mix, uh, you'd have to say that uh, there was some kind of subjective truth, at least, in everything Gray Barker wrote. Exactly. That's that's my point. And I accept that I would add to that that subjective truth is as important to human beings and to our understanding of ourselves, which is after all the basis of any inquiry. We're trying to understand ourselves and our place in the universe as any purported objective truth. You know, this makes things all the more difficult because this is something we've talked about on the PowerCast on a number of occasions. People expect to have answers black and white Reader's Digest versions. And as soon as you start mentioning the various shades of gray to mention the title of this documentary, it becomes very difficult to convey that message to people. It may be difficult, but that's what is necessary. People are looking for... uh for Klaatu, <laughs> and uh, it depends on which version of Klaatu you want. Uh, either one is very questionable. I don't. Uh, uh, I don't think. I think we can make a great deal of progress on the subjective truth, the reality of man meets alien. No double entendre intended, although we might go in that direction as well. The fear of the alien, the attraction to the alien, the power of the other. We can get a lot further with that. That's something we're able to to feel in our, 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 our in, in the visceral sense and, and articulate um, much better than an objective truth that assuming there is one, and again, I tend to think that there is, uh, it may be beyond our comprehension. And we may, in fact, have to 
uh, only understand it to the extent that we are capable of it. The, the, my favorite book on the subject would be Flatland, which was written well over 100 years ago, which is uh, two-dimensional creatures trying to understand three-dimensional beings and the implications thereof. Um, all you can do is approximate at best. Before we split for the hourly break here, Bob, can you tell our listeners how they can see or get a copy of Shades of Grey? Yes, um, the easiest way is just to go to, go to our website at theyknewtoomuch.com, and there'll be a couple links there. Uh, it's on the, There's links to Amazon.com. There's links to Netflix. If you want to stream it online, you can do that. And Blockbuster, also, it's also available there. Um and pretty much anywhere you do your shopping, uh, Walmart, uh, Target, Best Buy, it's all available online. I would say, you know, you, you might be hard pressed to see it carried in the store. I'll just, they're kind of cutting back on what titles they buy, and since this isn't a blockbuster title, I'm not sure that you'll find it there. But you can go to their websites and find it. We'll be back with Bob Wilkinson, Jim Mosley, Alan Greenfield. Our co-host is Greg Bishop. On the other side of the PowerCast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the PowerCast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We return. Our co-host is Greg Bishop. We're talking with Bob Wilkinson. He's director of a new film, Shades of Grey, about the life and times of the UFO provocateur, none other than Gray Barker. Two of his close friends with us was well, Jim Mosley and Alan Greenfield. Yeah, I had a question for Jim, and I'll, I'll, uh, knowing that he may be picking up every other word, I'll try to, uh, let me give the background just briefly. Beckley and I did an episode of uh, the late and semi-lamented UFO Hunters, uh, on the Men in Black, um, last year, or last season, as it turns out, which we knew at the time. Um, and there, there was, they left out some stuff, but they treated me very nicely. And that was the second time I was on there. Very nice folks, uh, although their level of comprehension of what's really going on is <laughs> less than perfect. And also, Surprise. Yeah, well, that they also left out my own one and only Men in Black case, which I find curious. But um, they did um, have on, I had mentioned that one of the, the photos that you can at least rely is, you know, not a posed shot, appeared originally in Saucer News, and Beckley, it's the one where where this mafiosi type guy is shadowing the Jack and Mary Robinson's God rest their souls apartment. Okay, we should mention and that Jack and Mary more Robinson, we should mention who they were. UFO were researchers UFO that were close with Jim Mosley. Oh uh, yeah. And, and uh, friends of mine. Okay. And uh, friends of mine as well. And um uh, friends of Yona Fortner, which is a whole episode in and of itself, I think more important than anybody realizes. But um in any case, 
the photo, as I had understood it over the years, was taken by Jim Mosley, as it was shown by Mr. UFO, my good friend Tim, and he indeed. Um, was, uh, he described it as he took the photo. So I wonder if Jim would clarify who actually took the photo. Was it Jim or was it or, or was it Tim? Um, I recall the following situation. There was something peculiar going on in the block in Jersey City where Jack and Mary Robinson lived. And uh, I cannot remember the details, but I remember uh, Tim Beckley and I driving by uh, that block a couple of times. Uh, I don't remember who was driving and who took the picture. I don't know if it makes any difference, but there was a strange fellow sort of uh, half hiding in a doorway. I remember he was very well dressed and it was uh, winter or at least cold weather. He had on a very expensive looking overcoat and uh, we took his picture as he stood in that doorway. Now, the whole uh, connection to the men in black is actually rather absurd because I can't imagine that there was any. The, the best objective thought that we ever came up with was that there was perhaps a, a bookie joint in that block and this fellow might have been the lookout standing outside of the place, but it had obviously nothing whatever to do with the Robinsons or with flying saucers, but the picture is genuine uh, as far as that goes. Yeah, I was just wondering, because I had recalled at the time, and my memory on that may be faulty, that you had said you took the photo, and, and Tim was with you, and the way it got on TV was the other way around, and you didn't get mentioned at all, although I had uh, sort of urged that that was, I mean, the, assuming that it is of more significance than you yourself think it is, uh, the, the, num the reason I considered it to be a reliable case of whatever it is, is because uh, you were watching Tim, Tim was watching you, and I don't think that it was a hoax or a got-up photo. Uh, a nefarious-looking guy uh, outside the building of uh, where um, two well-known UFO investigators lived at the time. I think the term men in black is a loose, you know, first of all, most, most of the time they're not in black. That's just the case. And well, I, I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, we have so many UFO pictures, especially now as technology gets better, where the picture itself is a hoax uh, through technology of various sorts, uh, none of which I understand. But the good thing about this picture that we're talking about is that the picture itself is absolutely genuine. The only thing wrong is the interpretation that we give to it. Well, that's not necessarily wrong. It's just that it's a matter of opinion. And uh, uh, my point was I consider the photo authentic because I consider you authentic. That is, I know when you're doing a hoax and when you're not. At least I, I think that I do. And you said it was for real and, you know, private to me. So I took that to be, you know, word of the law. So, okay, now we've clarified that. Let's look into Gray Barker, the hoaxer, then. Bob, can you tell us some examples of Gray Barker's pranks that you might have explored in that film? Mm -hmm. uh, some of them, Jim would probably be better to speak about because he, he was there for a lot of them. 
and uh, most of the stories that I gathered were from other individuals. But uh, perhaps the the most famous prank was the the straight letter that was sent to it was sent to George Adamski and I believe four others. And uh, and this was a letter that that Barker had typed up and said. Basically, the, everything you know, you, the government supports everything you know. We can't come out publicly and talk about it. And, and, uh, you know, Adamski kind of trumpeted the letter immediately and used it as saying, this is evidence that, you know, and whether Adamski, Adamski himself believed it or not, you know, no one knows. It's kind of speculation at this point. And maybe your other guests could answer that better than me. But, uh, you know, they got Barker into a lot of trouble because, you know, obviously, you can't do that on government letterhead. <laughs> so, uh, well, and I, I'm not sure. Like to, Were you there, Jim? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I'd like to give a, a little more detail in, in, in that yeah. story. Uh, and, and the Barker, film goes into detail on it also. I, mean, I, I go into detail of the story, and, and Jim tells the story in the film. So it's Jim telling the, the story of the yeah, well, there. But. Gray Barker knew a young man who, uh, whose father was high in the State Department. So, uh, and, and this, uh, the son was interested in saucers, but being a young fellow and perhaps influenced by Gary Barker's tendency to be a hoaxer, he, uh, decided to send to Barker, uh, examples of the stationery of several different government agencies which he was able to pick up, presumably, in visiting his father at the State Department. And so uh, I don't remember now, I couldn't list to you offhand what these approximately seven different letterheads were, but one of them was the State Department. And uh, when uh, Greg Barker and I got together one particular weekend in uh, Clarksburg, we had a bit to drink, I suppose, and then we uh, started uh, writing letters to various people on these various letterheads. And all of them are pretty well lost in history, except the one that got so much attention. And that was the one which uh, uh, Barker uh, signed himself as R.E. Strait of the Cultural Affairs Committee uh, of the State Department. I don't remember the exact text of the uh, letter, but it very clearly said that there are those of us here uh, who uh, cannot, because of policy, uh, come out publicly and endorse your claims, uh, for speaking, of course, to Adamski. We cannot publicly endorse your claims, but we do uh, have uh, feelings uh, toward your activities which are positive rather than negative. And it, and it went on like that. And uh, anyone that knew uh, Ray Barger as well as I do would immediately suspect him as the hoaxer, uh, assuming that it was a hoax, because it starts out, my dear professor. And one of Barker's strange secrecies was to start his letters that way, my dear so-and-so, which is an unusual way to start a letter. Anyway, well, the other thing I noticed, by the way, is Gray Barker had a distinctive writing style. And if yes. you're familiar with that writing style, he didn't make any effort to change it. And certainly, if both of you were blasted at the time that you came up with this prank, it wouldn't have involved a great effort. The letter was very distinctively Gray Barker. That is absolutely true. Uh, but the interesting thing was that when uh, 
George Adansky received this, I would imagine he must have realized it was a hoax, but I don't think that bothered him very much because uh, it certainly wasn't his hoax. He really did receive this letter, and he publicized it just as widely as he possibly could, which I don't blame him for doing. Well, the government was not at all happy about that, and I believe the FBI at some point visited uh, Adansky, told him that the letter was a fake and to stop publicizing it, which, of course, made Adansky publicize it more. And uh, there was an investigation by the uh, State Department and a separate investigation by the uh, FBI as to uh, this uh, whole thing because it is a rather serious crime to uh, misuse the government stationery in this manner. But on the other hand, obviously there was no criminal intent. Uh, there was uh, nothing that would uh, smack of terrorism or such as we think of terrorism today. And I rather imagine, although I can't prove it, uh, that uh, this young man must have told his father about what happened and his father still being in the State Department passed the word that uh, a more thorough investigation was not needed because uh, of the circumstances involved and the uh, investigation I would say was squashed at some point and did not proceed but uh, Gray Barker was visited by one or both of those entities. I was not visited, and I was very glad not to be. And uh, so that's how it was. It uh, uh, occurred in 1957, I believe. And uh, although we certainly didn't think so or expect it at the time, it has become a, uh, a point of folklore, or I think Al could uh, explain it in, in better words, but uh, it has become a rather famous event, and uh, I did uh, close by saying that I told Gray at some point, much after that, I said, if I outlive you, I am going to confess uh, that we did this uh, straight letter. And all he said, well, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, because it's a, a two-part thing. It was uh, fun. It was interesting. It made people think about saucers more. It served its purpose, but certainly uh, without the egotistical satisfaction of having people know that we did it, uh, the story is not complete, nor is it fair to leave people hanging forever with believing something that was not true. So sure enough, um, uh, Barker died in uh, December of uh, 1984, and in the January issue of Saucer Smear, I told the whole story. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the Earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Fortean phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. 
plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We are talking to. Bob Wilkinson, he's director of a feature-length film about Gray Barker's Shades of Gray. The co-host is Greg Bishop. Our guests, people who knew Gray Barker very well, Alan Greenfield and Jim Mosley. Now, in the film, Bob, did you unearth information that people maybe in general didn't know about Gray Barker? I don't know that it's information that wasn't known. I think it was information that wasn't widely known. And and I would that would be with his lifestyle. Uh, Barker was a closeted gay man that I don't think was well known outside of his close circle. I think he kept that that secret in pretty tight. And to me, I think that that part of his life is central to understanding Gray Barker the character. And I think that I think that the UFO writings and the investigation simply enabled him to exist in the society he existed in. And I think, uh, you know, I, for, for me, I can't imagine living today in Appalachia, in West Virginia, and to be a gay man, much less 1950s, 60s rural Appalachia. And so um, I think that to, to me, there has to be a connection with that and the idea of the men in black to him. And I think that that's why that the whole story that he put out there resonated so much with him. And uh, I think that for some reason, and I don't know why he was he was stuck here in West Virginia. And he, I, I, you know, I believe he could have been one of the big writers of that time. And in, in whether it be the sci-fi genre, horror. I think he could have been one of the top writers, but for some reason or another, or another, he stayed in West Virginia. And in that period, without the technology we have today with the Internet and communication, there was just no way to kind of propel himself on a national stage. What was the UFO field then, his national stage or attempt to achieve that kind of recognition? Yeah, I think so. I think he enjoyed that. I think... Because, I, I mean, he was well known and when he would go to conferences, he was one of the, one of the names that people would go to, to, for expertise. And I think he did kind of enjoy that. And, you know, it, it's, with me, I'm speaking on pure speculation because I didn't, I didn't, I've, I've never got to speak to Barker. And that's the one, the one thing in the film that I really wish I could have. I wish I would have done this, you know, 20, 25 years ago. But I, uh, would, I, I'd like to add something to that. Gray Barker did not have any friends locally 
except some young men that he had sexual relationships with, but he did not have a, a social group. He uh, kept entirely to himself. Uh, he had no name of either himself or his Australian uh, publications on the door of his office. And if someone came to the door, he would literally uh, peek through the blinds and see uh, who, who it was. And in most cases, he simply just wouldn't open the door. And uh, the only uh, friends that he had then were uh, people in, in the saucer frame field, all of whom lived elsewhere. Uh, one of the main ones, of course, being myself. And I lived, as I said, about 10 hours drive from Clarksburg. And I got down there two or three times a year, and he got up to the New York area perhaps once a year. So uh, he did not have a social life, and it was rather a, a sad thing. And I'll just end with this. I'm sure that I asked him more than once, uh, why don't you go and move to New York City? If you were living in Greenwich Village, for instance, you would not be noticed, you would not be picked on, you would uh, blend in with uh, the whole culture there, and uh, you would uh, experience a great deal more freedom and could do more uh, in your personal life and in your uh, career as a writer. And uh, the essence of his answer was, and I can understand it, he was brought up on a farm in West Virginia back in the 30s when they didn't even uh, have electricity. They all loved uh, the Roosevelt administration because he, Roosevelt's uh, era was what finally brought them electricity out in the boondocks. And uh, uh, this was his uh, background, and he couldn't, go beyond it uh, more than a, a certain amount. He was a college graduate, and uh, there were many reasons that he had risen quite a bit above his family's level of education and understanding, and yet without that psychological crutch, he didn't feel comfortable. And uh, uh, the truth was that every time he traveled out of the state, and I was involved with some of those trips, he would tend to crack up uh, pretty much, and he'd drink more than usual and just be miserable and uh, psychologically out of tune. And uh, and that's why he stayed where he was and never uh, made uh, that move. And I think uh, Bob Wilkinson was just alluding to the fact that it's a, a tragedy and that indeed he could have made such a move, but he didn't choose to. And I can speak to that a little bit because being a, I'm a West Virginian. I was born here and I've lived here all 35 years of my life. And there is something about this place that kind of sucks you in. And I don't know what it is. I really don't, and I can't place a finger. And a lot of West Virginians will get angry at you when you say that. That well, I'll tell you, in in winter, uh, I didn't come much in the dusk of winter, but my God, that place is cold. Yeah, I love it cold though. I can't stand the heat. I was saying when I came down to Key West for your interview, that was that's that's too hot for me. It gets too hot here in the summertime. I'm going to move to Minnesota. <laughs> well, okay. You know, I live one year in Minnesota, ladies and gentlemen. And, you know, I grew up in New York City. I was used to winter weather, but not like the winter weather you have up there. You know, where at night we actually had a heater attached to our car to keep it warm enough so I could start <laughs> the engine in the morning. 
Yeah. It was like an engine tank heater, and I had this long electric cord coming down from our second store window. I lived in the second store apartment. So I think it felt like two years, not one year. Not to denigrate the people in Minnesota, our radio network that we're joining is in Minnesota. They understand. But it yeah. just wasn't my kind of scene. Oh, I was going to say, I interviewed Jerome Clark up there, and it's the first time I've experienced my pants freezing. It was almost like you step out into that cold and your pants just freeze solid. And Jerome Clark it, it, for a second. Yeah, it was interesting because I, I, I interviewed Mr. Clark up there in December, and then one week later I was in Key West to interview Jim and just the different climates. And it, was, it was interesting. Well, now we'll have to see a totally different climate now, Jim, that all the oil is coming your way. Have you seen any of it yet? Well, if you read these accounts carefully, uh, at the beginning there was a theory that the oil would uh, make the turn to the east and come down around the Keys and then up the east coast of Florida. Uh, nothing like that has happened yet. The closest uh, that it has come is in the far western part of uh, Florida, the Panhandle, and uh, there some of the beaches have already become uh, polluted. Whether uh, over a longer period of time uh, that uh, pollution uh, will reach the Keys and then over to the East Coast is unpredictable, but it would seem unlikely that that will happen. I certainly don't worry about it. I'm not a beach person to begin with. I worry about the fact that the hurricane season began as of June 1st and uh, is predicted to be a particularly heavy year with more named storms and more serious storms. So uh, that is my focus at this time. The oil spill is a horrible tragedy, and even if no oil reaches the Keys, uh, it's been written up very clearly several times recently that the economic damage to Florida's tourist industry has already occurred and uh, cannot, that will not be changed whether the oil gets here or not because people think that it might, so they cancel their reservations and that has been a, a very serious problem here. This is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash Namecheap. See you online. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Greg Bishop is our co-host. We're talking to Bob Wilkinson. He's director of a film called Shades of Grey about Grey Barker. Two of Grey Barker's close friends, Jim Mosley, Alan Greenfield, are joining us. 
Bob, I wanted to ask you. Now, Gray lived very much, because I visited his home once, he didn't have a very high standard of living either. I mean, people think he was very famous in the UFO field. He wrote all these books. But, you know, he just was barely middle class, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when he was there toward the end of his life, I don't even know if you could consider him middle class. I think he was, I think he was pretty poor there toward the end. Uh, he, he had moved back to Riffle, which is in Braxton County. And Riffle's a town of, you know, maybe 20 people. If that, it's isolated out in the mountains. Today, it's, I mean, you're talking as the crow flies, maybe five to 10 miles, but it takes you probably upwards of an hour to get to Riffle from the interstate to travel that distance even today. And he had moved back into the, the mobile home that his family had there on family land. And uh, that's where he spent, you know, the remainder of his life. And I think, well, I, I, I want to say that his mother was sick at that time too. Was his mother sick at that point when he moved back to Russell in Braxton County? Oh, his mother had died, I'm sure, long ago. He had a, a, uh, Older sister that lived in, in the area that you're talking about. Uh, but, yeah, uh, it was out of Exchange Road. Both of his, uh, yeah, both of his parents were long gone. I was just going to say, uh, his economic life is rather interesting too. He came from poverty, from a farming environment, and uh, he had already moved to the city of Clarksburg before he got into uh, writing about UFOs. And uh, I believe his book, uh, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, came out in 1956, which was early in his uh, career. And that book did sell quite uh, well in hardcover, and it brought about uh, the expansion of his saucer newsletter. I think he had about 3,000 subscribers, which was unheard of in those days, or indeed in these days. Uh, and he was selling books like mad, uh, through the mail. And, uh, the point of it is, for a while there, he was making out quite well indeed. And he bought a new car and he got a nice high class office and even with a female secretary, which I found rather amusing, uh, cause he did not usually, uh, mix with women if he could help it. Making a long story short, uh, as the years went by and he's still selling these contact ebooks through the mail, uh, many of which he wrote himself or at least edited uh, heavily from the original version. Uh, but uh, the older people that he was mainly selling to started to perhaps die out or get tired of the same kind of books over and over and over. So his uh, uh, net income decreased uh, remarkably over the years, and by the time he uh, died, having moved back to his uh, roots, uh, as you pointed out, uh, he his estate was actually a negative estate. He left nothing. Bob, let me ask you here. Of all the things that Barker oh. did, we know he did some pretty wild stuff. We know that there are certain, obviously, serious elements about a lot of the things he did. Do you know of any serious cases he investigated other than Flatwoods in 1952? What about that? Uh-huh. Uh, well, I would have to say the, the Mothman incident was, sure. was pretty serious. You know, some of the other cases, uh, people had brought up uh, Flatbush. I believe in, was that Kentucky? And I think there was an incident in Kentucky that he 
kind of investigated. Then towards the, the end, he started sending out people interested in doing the investigation, investigations for him. He would uh, hear of an event, and I, I spoke with a few people. Roger Paris was someone who would go out and do things for him early on and when the Saucerian was being published. I think he was even attributed as being editor of the Saucerian was Roger Paris for like the first five issues. And he would send, uh, he had, there toward the end of his life, there was a gentleman, Richard Taylor, who would kind of, I think he became his driver, would get him to conventions and things. And But I think he kind of, you know, after the Mothman stuff, you don't see much about Barker investigating, and that was early 70s. And I think he became a collector at that point of stories as evidence of the of the archive shows. And he begins interview. Well, I take that back because there was the Carlos Linde tapes where. Uh, yeah, well, you've did, uh, you've got a good point. As he got older, he did less and less uh, personal investigation. You you just made me think of a story that I had long uh, forgotten. I forget what year it was, but there was a uh, a man somewhere way out in the boondocks of, of West Virginia who had had a remarkable sighting that had been written up somewhere. And uh, this fellow had seen a uh, saucer land with a very strange-looking humanoid being in it and all kinds of uh, symbology and strange costumes, et cetera, et cetera. That's about all I remember about it. And uh, Barker and I, in one of my uh, visits to uh, Clarksburg, went out uh, to uh, actually meet this man and uh, interview him. And it was a very funny day, really. It was a comedy of errors. Uh, we thought we knew where this fellow lived. He, he lived in a trailer somewhere way, way out in the country. And we spent hours just looking for this uh, trailer and, uh, and just, you know, making U-turns and going back over the same road and so on. It was just uh, got to be rather annoying toward the end. And then we finally did meet him, and he told uh, the kind of story that uh, that we had already read. Uh, his wife, I remember, was there and would barely speak to us and quite obviously didn't believe a word of her husband's story. So rather than contradict him or insult us and tell us to leave, she just simply stayed in the kitchen of the trailer and uh, just uh, paid no attention to us at all. And uh, I uh, got the feeling that uh, Barker <laughs> overall did not enjoy this uh, trip because of all the frustrations involved. And that may indeed have been the last case that he ever personally investigated. Mm -hmm. Do what? you remember when the Carl Allen investigation was? I know because he, he either went to Carl Allen or Carl Allen came to West Virginia, and they're still in his archives, about six or seven tapes of an interview between Barker and Carl Allen telling this story. You mean Carlos Orlando, right? Carlos Orlando, yes, huh? Yes, no, no. <laughs> yes, well, let the, you know, I'm, of course, not trying to hog the mic here, although I am. Uh, but uh, that's a fascinating story. Uh, Carlos Allende was a very strange individual who, I don't want to go into all of it, but he was intimately involved with the uh, case of, um, uh, of the Philadelphia experiment where uh, supposedly this uh, military ship had been teleported from uh, one naval yard to another. And there's a great deal more to it, but Carl Allen or, or Carlos Allende was uh, about the main source of, of this information. 
and was quite well known in the field, but the very few people had actually met him. He was really a legendary figure, literally. And it just happened to be one of the weekends that I was visiting Gray. All of a sudden, uh, Allende uh, knocked on the door, and there he was. He had come to visit Gray Barker without any forewarning or anything of the kind. So, uh, how can I put it? He was interesting, but hardly believable, at least not to me. All I remember is that we went out to dinner, and I paid for the dinner. And then, uh, in order to Isn't that always as usual, Jim? You always pay for the dinner. When Jim pays, everybody pays. Yes, exactly. Well, when Jim pays, nobody pays. So, uh, that uh, evening, uh, he pretty well had to stay overnight in order to stay up late and tell his stories to Gray. So uh, I paid for his uh, motel overnight, which also sticks in my mind. And uh, the evening went on and on. The Gray and Carlos uh, talked, and uh, I drank because I got uh, tired of listening to all this nonsense. And uh, I believe uh, Gray recorded most of it and then sold these recordings to his fans. And he was supposed to split the take with uh, Allende, which he failed to do somehow. And then, uh, quite a long period of time, he got a, a basically a threatening letter from Allende. I can hardly blame him because Gray, for whatever reason, had not kept his word and and uh, had kept all the money for himself. But that was indeed a uh, a fascinating evening. Only a few other software researchers ever met Allende. In the, uh, in the flesh, uh, but he, uh, I suppose, eventually died. No one necessarily knows exactly when, but uh, in his day, he was perhaps one of the most colorful people in the field. Yeah, I think in the mid to late 80s was when Allende uh, died. Somebody may have better information. Bill Moore actually met with him a few times, and I talked to him about that. Um, very strange character, unfocused, um, rambling type. When I, listening to these uh, stories from Alan and, and Jim, I'm struck, and, and Paul said, uh, Paul Kimball is here, actually. Uh, with me, uh, I'm struck by the, and Paul made the comment that, uh, people in the, in probably in the 50s and 60s in ufology, particularly people like Mosley and Barker, had a, a sense of wonder and a sense of humor and playfulness, but a serious side as well that's missing now. And I, I said that, um, yeah, it's like, uh, in the old days, they were more like, uh, grown-ups who were playing at being kids. And right now, the people that are in the field that have any sense of humor, or whatever, are more like kids that never grew up. And I, I think you that's know, a big I, I'd like to just, uh, I'd just like to add, uh, one thing there. One of the few people in the field, uh, that somehow, uh, managed to meet uh, Carlos Allende was, um, Edward U. Condon. Really? Uh, <laughs> head of the Condon Committee. Uh, for some reason, Carlos wanted to uh, meet him. And I, I did meet uh, the uh, Colorado Project Chief in person once uh, at his office, I suppose. And uh, he told me his meeting was uh, 
with Carlos Allende, and I asked him about it, and all I remember him saying is, well, he didn't fall at the mouth, but I really didn't believe what he had to say. It's kind of unfortunate, I think, that that meeting ever took place, because uh, Condon had every uh, propensity to ridicule the UFO field, and he had a, a bias against UFOs, and in a long story, he should never have been put in charge of a project like that. But meeting people like Yandy certainly didn't uh, add to his uh, <laughs> positive feelings, if any, uh, about the average thought or believer. You know? Paul wanted to ask uh, Bob a question about uh, filmmaking, because Paul is actually, as most people know, a documentary filmmaker. Hi, Bob. Paul Kimball here. I'm a Hi, documentary... Uh, good. I'm a documentary filmmaker from up in Canada. Made a few films about UFOs and other things. I saw your film and I just wanted to say, uh, I think it's, it's really good. Uh, it's a tremendous subject. And, um, I think a lot of people would look at it and think maybe this belongs on the sci-fi channel or space up in Canada. I think it actually belongs on the history channel. Um, because I think it's talking more about a, a lost piece of Americana that whatever UFOs might be or not be, I think the story of the people that were investigating them, looking into them, like Gray and Jim, those kinds of people, I think that's an important story to tell, and I think you told it well. So, you. you know, send Gene an email. I don't know what your distribution is like, but if you're not in Canada, Gene can tell yeah, you how to contact me. I'd be happy to try and help. Are, uh, Seminal Films, they handle, and Entertainment One handles the U.S. and Canadian distribution. Oh, if you've got E1, you're covered then. So hopefully we'll see you up in yeah. Canada sooner rather than later. Because yeah. it's, it's a really yeah, it's good film. Me. Hey, I appreciate it. It means a lot coming from another filmmaker. Oh, I thought you wanted to ask him something about the film. No? Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what we call a cameo, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, can you still hear me? Hello? Yes, we can hear you, Alan. Yeah, hi. Hi, Paul. I haven't uh, communicated with you in quite a while, and uh, I hope we can speak or write to each other sometime soon. Yeah, Jim, Greg and I are going to give you a call, I think, um, over the next couple of days and pester you. Uh, so I hope all is right, well down there. I, I had an accident recently uh, where I fractured my uh, pelvis, and I Ooh. don't leave uh, uh, home at all for the last couple of weeks and probably another couple of weeks. So call any time. I can guarantee you that I'll be home. <laughs> well, swift recovery to you, and we will. And I think Thank all you. the listeners of the Paracast wish Jim a swift recovery. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. Our co-host is Greg Bishop with a very tiny cameo from another co-host, Paul Kimball. We're talking about the movie Shades of Grey, directed by Bob Wilkinson, who's here with us. We have two of Gray's friends, Jim Mosley and Alan Greenfield. 
Now, amongst the things that Gray did, of course, he wrote about UFOs and all that stuff. In his civilian life, he also brought motion pictures into his area. He owned a motion picture theater, I believe, at one time, right? Actually, it was after the film was released that I finally ran into a few of the people who had who had received the movies from him, ran the theaters and the drive-ins, and he did control a lot of the area, and that was his day job, I guess you could say. And I think that all played into what Jim was talking about early, you know, at the beginning of the show, where he did have that background in horror films and sci-fi, and, and he operated in that genre a lot and in the film business. And uh, the people who ran the theaters, the theater owners had an interesting take because you would, uh, I, I just happened to say, hey, did Gray Barker ever distribute any film here? And they were like, yeah, I remember him, real tall guy, awkward. And he's, they were like, yeah, he was a weird guy. And, and so it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting to get the, the common West Virginians take on Gray Barker. In the area. Yeah, that's and from what I understand, he distributed films. Another reason that Gray Barker's uh, income decreased over the years because he uh, was a film distributor in that part of West Virginia, possibly the biggest in that area. But as time went on and the drive-ins became marginal and finally died out, uh, obviously he had fewer and fewer customers for his core business, and that was a loss. Uh, which he did not get over. He didn't ever get any replacement for that. There was a time of a few years when he did rent a theater in Buchanan, which is a town a few miles from Clarksburg, but he didn't make any money at that either. In fact, he barely broke even. He told me that he had to steal the popcorn money in order to break even there, which I thought was rather amusing. But he was attracted to uh, uh, films uh, for the same reason that he was attracted to UFOs. He enjoyed the world of fantasy. Some of the, uh, I heard a good story about him. He would take, he would run like Marilyn Monroe and Paul Newman bit part movies and build them as the a feature of Marilyn Monroe or Paul Newman, and they would be featured on the marquee. And you know, people would go to see these films, and they'd be in there for ten seconds. But people would continue to go see them, and so he he was even a. I guess you could say a character as far as that that business went. And Jim, was it you that told me the story about the where he cut Alan Hynek out of? Uh, well, yeah, out of it's the funny. Uh, yeah, you were just. Uh, I had a feeling you might lead me into that. Uh, briefly, uh, he he didn't like Alan Hynek at all, simply because Hynek was too serious. I did like Hynek very much. I only met him a few times. He is my hero in the whole UFO thing. But anyway, Gray and I differed on that. And what Gray did as just his own little private joke, every time uh, a, a copy of um, A Close Encounters of the Third Kind came into his hands, and of course, uh, Heineck has a, has a cameo role in there. He's seen very briefly. Gray would cut those frames out of the film before he passed it on to the next person. So all, all of those uh, copies of, of that movie uh, that Gray ever touched uh, lacked that little interlude with uh, Alan Heineck, and I think that's kind of amusing. I'm trying to hear what we're saying uh, from the standpoint of the general audience and there are several things that are uh, kind of 
reduction to the absurd, certainly they're reductionist, and I do tend to reject them. Some of them are even homophobic, frankly. Uh, the notion that Gray was interested in UFOs because it brought him friends from afar that he otherwise wouldn't have had because he was a homosexual in a small town in West Virginia is part and parcel of the notion that uh, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel was painted by a homosexual person because it involved uh, nude and semi-nude figures. I mean, that's, that's just an absurdity. Another absurdity is that he stayed in West Virginia because he, it was uh, a, a crutch. Perhaps he stayed because he liked the folklore. It certainly shows up in his work and in his tail spinning. He was a West Virginian. He was a quintessential West Virginian, apart from uh, from anything to do with his uh, sexual tastes, which I don't think really are anyone's business, and he chose not to be out. Uh, I think that's sort of a, I avoid the subject because I think it's a more or less closed subject. I respect that even with the dead, and all I can say is I, I don't see any connection there. Interested in horror movies or, or the, the genre of dark films? So am I. Does that mean that I'm not seriously interested in, in UFOs or or cases that might be might have a, a, a underlying reality, subjective and objective? I don't know that there's any conflict between those two things. To the contrary, I think that uh, uh, a taste for the um, the mystical and dark uh, reflects both one's reality and perhaps one's spirituality as well. Certainly, one's psychology. It doesn't necessarily speak against anyone. So um, well, let's not reduce the man to uh, pat explanations of who he was. If you if you talk to him, read what he had to say, he was a complex individual with complex ideas. Uh, he was very much a West Virginian and very much a part of and parcel to and witness to the folklore of which there are many traditions from Pentecostalist traditions to Mothman. And I think we need to see him in that context. I, I think far better of Gray than apparently some of uh, some of the rest of you folks. And at least that's what's coming across, I think, to the uninitiated well, I don't, I don't listener. Think, I don't think little Gray at all. I mean, I find it admirable what he did. And and I think to to live that life in rural Appalachia, I, I mean, I think it, what, the, what society did to him was criminal. And I think that it's central to Barker's being. I mean, I've, I've read through his journals, and I've read through, I've read through those things, and I think you can, you'll find in those readings that, you know, that this is something that really was central to who he was, and, you know, I can't help but believe that that effect affected his writing and. Cincinnati made musicals because he was a homosexual. Is that the kind no, of logic? No, no, no. No, I didn't. I didn't I'm not tortured, saying that. The tortured homosexual image is, I think, something that we had best move beyond. And I reject it out of hand. I mean, it's a, it's a separate issue. Have well, gay people been discriminated against in society and have they suffered for it? Yes. 
same is true of uh, my people, the Jews, the same is true of black people, and that, that has that motivated the arts and uh, um, comedy and theater? Probably so. Probably it has contributed to that. But is that the key factor in understanding why a person does what they do or how meaningful the work that they do is? Absolutely not. And I completely reject that. Totally. Bob, you want to have a response before we move on? Well, I mean, uh, I spoke with some people that are in the gay community and who've, who know a little bit about Barker. And, I, you know, I draw my conclusions from what I've gathered as far as reading, as far as talking to other individuals who knew Barker. Who, and the one handicap I have is I couldn't speak to Barker myself. So I, I, I believe that that's a central part of Barker's character. I'll tell you what, well, what should we take away from the life of Ray Barker? This is an area where we can discuss it, but this is an area where we only have a few minutes left, and we understand there's a little bit of disagreement here, but let's just see what can we take away from the life of Ray Barker, whether you see this film or not, and I hope most of our listeners will. You know, I like to think of my work as very, very original and original contributions. Long before I wrote uh, my first book, Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, and I didn't discover this until afterwards, Gray had written something. You know, I, one of my things is that the phenomena in the occult world in the magical universe and UFO and UFO connected phenomena such as the men in black are part of the same spectrum of things in a different context. Gray had written in the, probably he wrote it in the last year of his life, he said, and I quote, any writer expressing pat explanations has just never studied a cult tradition in which the MIB are firmly established. As military secret weapons theories can never explain UFOs, which have been seen from the dawn of recorded history, the CIA could not be responsible for the MIB, who have, down through the centuries, meddled into our affairs, and just as they do today, scared the living daylights out of us. That's the gut of the UFO mystery, and whatever his motivations, that's what Gray's legacy is, to put us in touch with the gut of the UFO mystery. Bob, what do you think we should take away from the film and the life of Gray Barker? Well, I think Gray, you know, as we touched upon, did have that sense of wonderment and awe, and, and he projected this entertainment. And I think that you really get down to the root, you know, coming from an outsider, because by no means am I an expert on the field. But I think with Gray Barker, what you get is a sense of the UFO community, the characters in the field, and these early stories that grow out of it. And I think that that's Gray Barker. Jim, what do you think we should take from the life of Gray Barker? Well, I just want to state that most people in the UFO field, and certainly most people that knew him at all in his hometown, did not know uh, that Barker was homosexual. Obviously, he did not uh, talk about it. Uh, he was perhaps somewhat ashamed of it, uh, as far as I was concerned. I found it mildly amusing. I, I don't know how to explain that, but I, I was not offended by his 
homosexuality, nor was I attracted to it. It was just an interesting part of his character. All I can say is he was one of the best friends that I have had in my life, and I've had very few close friends, and I was uh, very sad when he obviously was going downhill in his last months and years, and uh, and I was very sad indeed when he died. And uh, that's really about all I can say. It, it was... Uh, a wonderful experience and it's part of my memories and uh, such as it will always be and uh, I'm glad that I knew her. Greg, you want to make a comment about how Gray Barker might have influenced what you do? Well, it, it mainly it's the attitude to have a sense of wonder, have a sense of um, inquiry and also very importantly not to take it horribly seriously because there aren't really any answers and there probably aren't likely to be maybe in our lifetimes there might be some but um just the whole you know attitude that he had towards the community and 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 towards the subject i i take away from you know that and that's a big part of my philosophy of the ufo subject the the one thing that happened i had no interaction with gray barker i picked up a copy of men in black the secret terror among us there was a phone number in it i called it in 1984, and his sister, I believe, answered and said that he had died like not less than a month before, which kind of depressed me. And that, that's that's one kind of personal memory I have of my connection with Gray Barker, if any. Bob Wilkinson, tell our listeners one more time where they can get a copy of Shades of Grey and also get more information about the film. To get more information about the film, you can visit our website, theyknewtoomuch.com. There's, uh, you can view a trailer there. You can get some more, you know, some, so there's some historical documents on there on some like Philadelphia Experiment, Mothman, Braxton County Monster and things. And, you know, you can, most likely you can find it at most of your online shopping destinations, Amazon.com, Blockbuster, and it's streaming at Netflix, uh, Borders, Walmart. So it's out there. It's pretty easy to, to find once you get digging around on the internet. You can't really do much about getting much of Jim Mosley's material online, although somebody does offer issues of saucer smear. But for those who want the real, genuine, one thousand percent printed version, tell our listeners where to go. I thought we would never reach this moment. Uh, you can write to me, Jim Mosley, uh, P.O. Box 1709, Key West, two words, Key West, Florida, 33041. And uh, what I would do is send you a sample copy of Saucer Smear and then try to persuade you to send us some money so that you can get on our mailing list and continue to receive these copies as long as they're being produced and at this point in time being very little short of 79 I have no idea how much longer they will be produced but uh, as long as they are you will receive them after you have made a pact with us as to how to pay for them give us that address again P.O. Box 1709 Key West, Florida, three three zero four one. Alan Greenfield, tell our listeners where they can find more about the stuff you, you do. Well, they can go to Google uh, on the infamous internet, as Jim is wont to call it, and my name is Alan A L L E N Greenfield G R E E N F I E L D. 
and they will find me in all kinds of places that I don't even know about, and they're more than welcome to do so. Uh, the first thing that will come up is the Assembly of Solomon, which is my own website, and they are uh, more than invited to come there and make a donation if they want to. And by the way, I hope Jim is around and doing the work for many, many more years. Saucer Smear is the only hard copy UFO magazine that I still read. Thank you. Greg Bishop, where do we find more of the stuff that you do? Well, I haven't written in about two months, but if you go to UFO Mystic, I've got something like three and a half years of commentary, reporting, uh, interviews, etc., uh, to go through an archive. Um, UFO Mystic is ufomystic.com and also uh, radiomysterioso.com, R A D I O M I S T E R O S I O. I think that's how you spell it. Um, that it's has, the uh, unknown my... domain that nobody can spell or find. Yes, it's Mysterioso with, a, it's with an I instead of a Y. And uh, that, that has my radio shows and interviews going back for quite a while, including an inter uh, interview with uh, Jim, I believe, is on there. And Jim doesn't remember. Well, no, well why man, would he? I being a lifetime celebrity, I've done just so many interviews with... I can't remember all of them, but I'm sure this was one of them, yes. <laughs> yes, it was, and it was enjoyable to me, and I, of course I remember it. Okay, Good. Bob Wilkinson, Greg Bishop, Jim Mosley, Alan Greenfield, thank you all for joining us this week on the Paracast. Uh, thanks, my pleasure. pleasure. Thanks, Gene, and it was nice to talk to Jim again and meet you, Bob, and, and finally uh, talk to Alan. Yes, indeed. Let me remind you that the PowerCast is coming to Earth, well, kinda, sorta, courtesy of the GCN Network, will be heard on radio stations in many cities in the U.S. starting Sunday, July 11th, from 9 p.m. until midnight central time, will still be available online from thepowercast.com, from iTunes, and from other sources for podcasts and online radio. Don't miss it. The PowerCast coming to Earth. The Paracast is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.